Good evening, everybody. Looks like we've got a few people still coming in. If you want a handout, we've got those on the chair in the back with an outline for the lesson. You can raise your hand and uh, we, can, we can have that brought to you. This class is a class that's focused on studying prayers in the Bible and then understanding how we can learn from those prayers, learn characteristics both about God and about how we should be praying. And then we'll spend the last five to seven minutes in this class constructing a prayer of our own that models this prayer. Um, it's important for us to understand each week we've been maybe understanding different aspects of God as we break into these prayers. The aspect of God that we'll glean from this is that God is a God of wisdom. So the Bible like routinely lays out that wisdom only comes from God. Any wisdom that exists that isn't from God isn't really truly wisdom. And so as believers, it's our job to seek not only God's wisdom, but his will uh, to be done because his will, as an extension of him being wise, his will is wise as well. And that is what Paul is getting at at the heart of this prayer in Colossians this evening when he prays for the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So in order for us to understand this prayer, I think it's helpful for us to contextualize Colossians. Um, Paul has written to the church in Colossae in response to false teaching uh, that was spreading throughout the region and threatening the church. We don't know the exact nature of what the false teaching was, but we get little glimpses of it. Like if you look in chapter 2, around verse 8, it's see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And then in verse 23, we see maybe another glimpse of this with things that have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, things like asceticism and severity to the body. So we don't know the exact nature of it, but there's some element of false teaching that has been present in Colossians. Uh, and so in the context of us understanding, like, well, why is he praying for them to have true wisdom? It's, in a sense, contrasting to this other alternative that exists for them to understand, like, a man-made wisdom versus true godly wisdom. If we look at the start of this prayer in verse 9, we're in Colossians 1, uh, 9 through 12 is, is the heart of the prayer here. But from the very start of verse 9, it says, and so, in the English Standard Version. Other versions say, for this reason. So like that points us back to what he was talking about just right before this. Um, in verse 3, he mentions, we always thank God when we pray for you. So this section after where he says we always thank God every time we pray for you, is elaborating on his thankfulness for them. Specifically, he's elaborating on the faith and the hope and the love that is evident in their lives since they've received salvation. So we see that, maybe just as a side note to this class entirely, like, once you receive salvation, you're supposed to have evident hope and love and faith in your life. 
um, and that, that that can be gleaned from this here. That's the proper response. So he's, he's thankful to them and he's thankful because of these things. And then this prayer uh, in verse 9 like, takes into account their faith and their hope and their love when it says, and so, or for this reason. So if we look at the prayer we studied last week um, with the Philippians, they were maybe like described as the church that loved Paul even when nobody else really did. And when we look at the church in uh, Thessalonians, they're this group that's excelling and he tells them to excel still more. Last week we read that this group that was already loving him when nobody else did was told to love uh, more and more and let your love abound. And this is like a similar theme here in this prayer. So Paul says, hey, you guys are already uh, full of faith and love and hope so much that in verse 4, they had heard of it like from other people. They had so much faith that they'd heard of it from other people. So this church that he's writing to is doing well, even though there are these false teachings that are being circulated like in the area. And a similar theme to Philippians and Thessalonians that we've looked to is even though they're already doing well, that's not like good enough to just say we don't need to keep growing. There's this push beyond the status quo of, hey, you can still learn more, you can still grow more. And then finally, one last little note of, of context just around um, this prayer before we jump into it is it's helpful to understand how this prayer is framed within the scope of the letter. So verses 3 through 8 talk about the effect of the gospel on their lives. And that's like all of this faith and hope and love that it's produced. But it's the effect of the gospel. And then verse 13 and 14, directly after this prayer, is a definition of the gospel. Let's read that together real quick. Verses 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. So that is like the 160-character tweet-distilled version of the gospel. Like, if you're looking for a short, beautiful way to describe the gospel, that's a good way to do it. So if he's talking about the effect of the gospel, and then he immediately defines the gospel, like, and that's the sandwich, bread, the meat of the sandwich is like this prayer here. And so this prayer inherently is like gospel-focused as well, because it's bookended by these things. That's the context of Colossians up to this point to get into this prayer. Are we good with that? Any questions on that piece? Okay. Let's read this prayer uh, from Paul. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, 
may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And then he goes on with verses 13 and 14 there. So on your handout, there's a, maybe a breakdown of the structure of this prayer that actually functions very similarly to maybe the structure of how our prayer last week looked, which is a request that he then kind of elaborates on with a reason for why he's asking that, and then like the four effects of that prayer, or the four results of that prayer. If you were to just distill what is the main request or what is the main ask of Paul in this prayer, what would you identify that as? Second half of verse 9. That you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So I think it's important for us if we've set up the context of there's like false teaching going on, that the knowledge of his will, to a degree, is informing us like relative to the false teaching that's going on. So maybe like there's a right way of God's will as opposed to the wrong way. But I think we can also like understand the, the larger principle of all spiritual wisdom and understanding, like within the scope of up to this point, like just biblically, what is spiritual wisdom and understanding? Like what does that mean? Some of it's related to the false teaching, but just if we zoom out, how would we define what the Bible says is spiritual wisdom? Or maybe like what books in the Bible would you go to to get a definition of spiritual wisdom? Proverbs, for sure. First Corinthians. What are some of those definitions of biblical wisdom? If you had to distill it from Proverbs or First Corinthians. God and keep his commandments is a really good uh, shortened version of that. Or like I think it's Proverbs 1-7 the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Right? Like there's this component of being rooted in like knowledge of God and fear of him, respect for him as far as spiritual wisdom is concerned, like recognizing who he is. But um, just generally up to this point like in the Bible wisdom has had a very practical effect. Like the whole book of Proverbs is this way, that it talks about wisdom within the context of specific actions by talking about wisdom as like being personified or the actions of a fool. And so you see like very specific actions of wisdom of like making this choice or spending your money this way or committing this sin. Like these specific actions are either wise or foolish. There's maybe like a larger principle of how uh, 
spiritual wisdom is meant in this context, which is talking about like there's knowledge, but it's married with application. Like there's knowledge, but then you actually have to do something with it, which is a lot of what this prayer is about. If the nature of the wisdom that Paul is, is asking for them to have is godly or spiritual or like coming from God uh, or about God, sometimes it's helpful for us to understand like what he's asking for by understanding what he's not asking for. So what type of wisdom is he not asking for in this? Or what are some of the characteristics of the opposite of godly wisdom? Wisdom. Yeah. What would that maybe sound like or look like? Go back to Ecclesiastes, where Solomon says, I tried to search out every understanding under the sun. I tried to understand everything man could know about pretty much anything, love or, or hope or anything that you would want in life. There's a philosophy out there to be had. Uh, but am I seeing it through God's eyes or just through what I can see on this earth? And that's, that's that dichotomy that's going on there is are we just walking by sight or are we using the faith and knowledge and understanding of God? Yeah, so his, his prayer is that they would have like spiritual knowledge, not just worldly or physical knowledge or knowledge of things without the context of knowledge with God. I think it's interesting that um, like if you bring that into 2023, what that might sound like is when people say like, oh, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And maybe what they mean by that with like, I have spirituality is that like I'm seeking wisdom that corresponds or I'm seeking a life that corresponds to like my inner voice or my inner truth or the desires of my heart. And that's what I'm going with of being a spiritual person and of trying to like live life by my standards with human or fleshly wisdom as opposed to godly wisdom. So I just think it's interesting that sometimes people today will use language of like, oh, I'm a very spiritual person or I'm, I'm interested in spirituality, but they're not looking to God or to the Bible to guide that spirituality. And that's like the exact opposite of what Paul is praying for them to have. It's not just spirituality in name, but spirituality or wisdom that comes from God in truth. And John, did you have a comment? I think there's an aspect of verse 9 that's not Paul. It's actually very good. I don't think it's, I think there's a way, and I haven't really thought through it too much, but there's a way you could be utilizing godly wisdom that is seen in other parts of the Bible but not be doing this. Because he's praying for the knowledge of God's will, not just godly wisdom. God's will is much different than God. Sure. No, and that's a really good point, and that kind of gets us into this next section. Um, I think the bottom line for us to consider with what he's praying for them is not for them just to have like some knowledge, but to have the right type of knowledge of God's will, and importantly, what they're supposed to do with it is to be filled with it. Um, the why beyond just this ask, the reason that he's asking for this is so that they may live in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. So this 
he's positioning this as something like fundamentally pretty different than what the false teachers would have been maybe trying to seduce the Corinthians with. If you like understand it of he's having to tell them not to fall prey to these things, it's probably because they were susceptible to falling prey to these things, or at the very least, these things were being preached to them. I think we learn a lot from this section in verse 20 of chapter 2. So sorry to somewhat cherry pick around the book, and, but it's, it's all one connected section. In chapter 2, verse 20, he, he talks about if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism or like uh, intentional self-restriction and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So he's maybe giving us a little color commentary on some of the, um, some of the, the teachings that would have been going around within the idea of self-denial or philosophical musings might seem like they change you for the better, but they don't actually. Like a life that actually transforms you is godly wisdom in a life that is pleasing to God. And specifically, it's the type of well-pleasing life uh, to God that is built on and leads to four things. So within the structure of the prayer, it's, hey, that you would know God's will, right, and be filled with wisdom of it so that you can walk in this way that's consistent and pleasing to him. And what that looks like is these four things. The first is um, bearing fruit in every good work in verse 10. Ephesians talks about bearing, uh, bearing fruit within the concepts of good works in chapter 2 and verse 10. It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Or in other words, like, duh, if you really understand God's will for your life and you want to live in a way that's pleasing to him, you're going to act in a way that's consistent with that and your life is going to reflect that in your actions. This is a blanket question, but what are some uh, practical like fruits that would be well-pleasing to God? What would that look like on a um, maybe like a granular basis? others? Just, just a quick like, hey, boom, 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 boom. What are some other fruits of a, a life that would, uh, would be pleasing to God? I think what Paul's having here is an example of that. He's making sure to know, or making sure to go out of his way to encourage them that they're doing the right things. I feel like that's 
definitely a group that we could be the encourager, be the people that are trying to seek out the best in other people and encourage them to pursue the best in themselves. So self-sacrifice and then this idea of like being really encouraging and exhorting and building up to other people, those are examples of a life that would be well-pleasing. Yeah, Adam. Christ was on earth, the good works that he did were mostly caring for people that couldn't care for themselves, providing healing care, um, caring for the, those that were around him, and especially those that you define as in, in need. So, and we'll get into defining what does it mean to actually know God's will, but like to know his will. Uh, is really to know him and his character. And so if we're going to know him and his character and then do good works that would be pleasing to him, it would probably be doing things similar to what he did when he was on the earth, like taking care of people who were in need and had that, uh, that opportunity where we could serve them. So it just, I think it's helpful sometimes we read these things in lists, but we don't really st- slow down and consider, like, what does that mean? And we're like, yeah, bearing fruits, that's a nice analogy. But it's like, what does that actually mean in your life to be bearing fruits if you have a knowledge of God's will and you have that wisdom? The next result of that is um, of a life that's pleasing to God or a component of a life that's pleasing to God is simply growing in the knowledge of God. So... There's this concept that like knowledge begets knowledge or knowledge leads to more knowledge and it creates like this flywheel or this uh, virtuous cycle. So think about it this way. The more that you understand God's holiness and his righteousness, the more that you'll understand his right to be the divine judge. When you understand how holy and how righteous that he is, you'll understand that he's in the position to judge everyone and anyone who isn't. But then the more you understand about his right to judge, the more amazing it will be when you consider his mercy and his grace and his love that he shows to people. Because he has the right to judge them, but he shows mercy and he gives grace. And then the more you understand his mercy and his grace that like spins you back to the top of the cycle where you understand like, wow, he really is holy and righteous and he's unlike any other being. Like the more we learn about God, the more we'll want to learn about God and the deeper that that goes. And then similarly, like the behavior change that accompanies that deepens and grows. So the more knowledge that we have of God leads to us like actually practically fulfilling his purposes in our lives. The third component of this is uh, that we would be strengthened to display endurance and patience. And I think it's interesting that verse 11 talks about he'd be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Um, When you think about God's power displayed in the Bible, what what do you typically think of? Sure. Yeah, uh, that's pretty spot on, right? Like speaking planets into existence is a good one, or plagues. Um, maybe like Old Testament pyrotechnics with Baal and like what's going on there, or New Testament miracles. 
Paul thought about it, of the power of God within the resurrection and ascension and enthronement of Jesus. But here, he's talking about the power of God simply for us to master patience and endurance. So if you think about that, that's maybe a little bit different than when we typically quantify God's power or put it in a box of like, wow, well, he does these big, creative, massive works. But he also gives you the ability to have like divinely empowered or supernatural patience and endurance and resilience. I think that's worth us noting uh, that in order for us to like fully master those traits in our new life in Christ, like we're going to need his, his power to do that. And then finally, the last component of this, of a life that's well-pleasing to him or uh, a component of a life that's well-pleasing to him is giving thanks joyfully in verse 12. So Paul thanks the one who has qualified them to share in the inheritance of the saints. And I think later on in the book, this kind of contrasts what some of the false teachers were doing. If you look in chapter 2 and verse 18, where it says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, or going on in detail about visions, or puffed up with reason by his own sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head or to Jesus. So, there's this contrast between God is the one who's qualified us to be saved and these false teachers of these other things that they're doing uh, are trying to disqualify you by saying, like, you have to follow these man-made rules or you have to fit in this box. But generally, a life that is pleasing to God, a life that um, is reflective of his will is one that gives thanks. So if we run back through those, the, the well-pleasing to God life is built on bearing fruit in every good work, on growing in the knowledge of God, on being strengthened to display endurance and patience, and it gives thanks joyfully to the Father. So that's just like some thoughts and notes about the text. We'll, we'll now transition to like some takeaways or observations, or how does this practically actually help us within the scope of our prayer life? I think the first note that we can consider is just the, the concept of ongoing prayer. So up in um, verse 9, he mentions, From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. So we've talked about how there is a growing threat of false preaching, but he's referencing prayers that predated this like crisis of false teaching. He's talking about how he's been praying for them before this happened. Um, prayers that maybe weren't like to specifically address a crisis of false teaching, but were more like preventative maintenance or prayers for Christians that are that kind of follow that like old adage of an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Like, hey, I'm praying for you before this whole thing ever happened, and now I'm still praying for you in this crisis, and I will probably continue to be praying for you after that. Um, so what he's been praying for them this whole time is that they would be filled with knowledge of God's will and that they would walk worthily, which as like a lesson point for us, I think is, is huge um, of the types of things that we should be praying for, for other people. 
Like when, when we think about prayer for other people, is it, hey, like, you know, I hope that so-and-so is sick and they get better, or I hope that they really have an understanding of God's will in their life so that when a trial comes, like they're going to be prepared to handle these things? That's actually like the last point we'll make, which I think is, per- no, it's perfect. It's perfect. That, that's a good heads up for that. Um, I think the other component of this is that he was praying for them like before all of this stuff came into their life about false teaching. And the idea of, um, Barry said this to me the other day, don't wait until your house is burning down to buy fire insurance. When we studied Jesus' prayer in the garden, do you remember how he was telling the apostles, like, hey, this is the night that I'm going to be betrayed, and, like, you need to be praying for this because there's a trial coming, and you're, you're going to need to be ready. Um, that component of praying for other people, maybe even before we know that there's anything wrong going on in their lives, so that they're going to be ready when it comes. Because the reality of our life is... If you're not actively in the middle of a trial, you're like on your way to your next one. And those things are coming. But we shouldn't wait to start praying for other people until they're in the middle of the trial, even though naturally we're going to pray more in the middle of a trial than we would otherwise. So that's that ongoing prayer point. I think the other point um, around praying for the will of God is something that we have hit in this class a few different times. Um, But generally, the idea of knowing God's will is something that we kind of like misunderstand in modern culture. I don't know how many people in here listen to the music of the rapper Drake, nor would I really like advocate for that. But he has a song called God's Plan, and it is most certainly not about God's actual plan. Um, But I think that that highlights the point that like people in the world will just extrapolate anything and be like, oh, this is God's plan is for me to be wealthy or for me to have the things that I want. And that's not really what we see biblically God's plan is. It's not in the Bible, God's will is not a specific plan for my life, like who I marry or what job I do or where I should live. Biblically, the will of God is a way of life that pleases God. God's will talks not only about like, 
how he wants us to live, but also God's whole big picture purpose of uh, saving us in Christ. The will of God and knowing the will of God is, is knowing God himself and his character and his purposes. So like sometimes we may want to know, well, who do I marry? But the will of God is more concerned with like what kind of a husband or a wife are you actually going to be? Or sometimes we may say, where do I work? Like practically, but the will of God biblically is more concerned with the type of worker that you are. So in praying for the will of God, um, I think it's important to understand like what that is. And that's not saying that we can't ever ask for God's will in clarity for moments of like, what should I do in these situations? But when we're praying for God's will, who's the focus? Is it God's will for my immediate life and all the things that I'm concerned about? Or are we praying and have a knowledge of God's will for all the things that he's concerned about? Are the things that he's concerned about and his will actually the things that we're concerned about? To extend that, like doing God's will in the Bible is pretty synonymous with just being obedient. Even more than that, knowing God's will like just simply comes from spending time with him and learning his character and reading his word. And you think about that from like a husband and wife, like a husband knows his wife's will and her priorities and her wishes because he knows her. He spends time with her. And so we can know God's will from spending time with him and listening to him. Um, And that's what Paul is praying for them to to understand and to have um, is through the gospel that they would know God and know his will in these different situations of everyday life. So that's the same thing that we should be praying for each other, is that we would know God through the gospel and know what he wants us to do in these everyday life situations. Our last point is exactly what Adam was talking about. Because the most amazing thing about this prayer is in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, For I want, you all, uh, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. So the ongoing nature of prayer that he had, where he's been praying about these guys for a while now, and he's continuing to pray for them now, and he probably will continue to pray for them, he had never met these people face to face. So it'd be easy to understand how Paul can pray for like the little startup church in Thessalonica that he spent a few weeks with and had mutual affection with because he knows those guys. But for him to be praying as frequently and intensely for a group of people that he's never met goes beyond my practice of prayer uh, by a a wide margin. And to an extent, like, that kind of makes sense that you would naturally pray for the people who are in your life who you know, like first-degree connections. And occasionally, um, someone may introduce like a third party that we've never met and say like, hey, would you pray for this situation or this moment? Or like, there's this thing over here that you're not really connected to, but you know about it in this immediate time. And could you, could you pray for that? Um, And it's right for us to pray for those things in those instances because generally, like, we can only pray for all of the believers in the most general of ways. It would be very impractical, even if we had a list, to pray through the list individually of every believer. It would be, like, (laughs) time-consuming and uh, maybe not the most productive way for us to go about that. 
but food for thought because Paul lays down like a whopper of an example here. What would it look like for us if we made the practice, because not just on a one-off, but the practice is what Paul has exemplified, of taking reports of Christians in parts of the world where we've never visited, finding out what we can about them, and then learning to intercede with God on their behalf. Adam introduced this concept to us in group three a few months ago of like, hey, this is a preacher that we have and we actually support. Um, It would be awesome if we could email him or if we could like reach out to him on a continual basis and say, hey, we are thinking of you and we are praying for you and how's your work going and how's your ministry going? Imagine being on the receiving end of that. Somebody that you've never like met face to face is continually checking in with you and encouraging you. That would stand to like open our eyes to bigger horizons of God's family and agenda. It would increase the reach of our like entire ministry. And it would express like the overall fellowship that we have in the church if we did that for other people. So to summarize the, the big maybe three points of that. The nature of ongoing prayer, I think we learned that from this. The nature of what they're praying for, of the will of God, of not just like, you know, the things that I may want for God to do in my life, but what does God actually care about and his priorities. And then praying for people outside of our circles. So there's maybe some moments for reflection around like, how could we practically find our own Colossian brethren to pray for? And then what would the impact of that be if we were to, to really fully do that? And then finally, if we're praying for ourselves and for others, are we praying for increased wisdom and in the knowledge of God and His will? Like are our prayers of that level of depth? Because we see Paul hits this in like multiple epistles, and I don't think he does that on accident. Like clearly this is like the soapbox that he's standing on and kind of like saying this is the point you all really need to understand is an increased understanding of who God is and his will. So if we were to construct a prayer using this one as a template, what would that sound like? If the main objective of this was for the people we're praying for to know God's will and understanding so that they would walk in a way that's pleasing to him and that then these types of results would happen where they bear fruit and increase in knowledge and they're strengthened with endurance and patience and they can give thanks joyfully. What would that sound like? Maybe where, where would you start with that if you were to construct your own prayer? thankful for fellowship with you um, through Christ and mercies of his resurrection. What else?
despite who you are or where you're at, that we all can have this common bond, like in that fellowship. All the price things overarching that we can all get by. We're thankful, in addition for the fellowship with God, but we're thankful for the unifying call of Christ for us and others to experience and share. Maybe that's hitting on those themes of like, I thank God for you in, in all of my prayers. Like we're thankful when we pray to God, not only for the blessings that we have, but for everyone else who shares in it as well and for their faith and love and hope. feels like uh, the natural response to that would be a so that statement, right? Well, I think, I think before we get to the fruit, there's this component of like being pleasing or walking worthy. Maybe we, for the, for the sake of this exercise, like you can paraphrase that however you want, we could, we could maybe just like literally quote it. And that works just as well too. When you're constructing your own prayers in this way, like it's okay to just rip off Paul. He doesn't mind if you plagiarize. That's okay. But I think that, that concept is so that we'd be fully pleasing to him. And then there's these... Uh, these results of that, that would come from that, of if we're living a life that's fully pleasing to him, what would that look like? And it doesn't have to be these same four things. It could be, could be other things. opportunities to be better acquainted, to know God more, and to to bear fruit as a result. So this is like one big run-on sentence um, in the text, but it's like full of these little micro ideas, and it Newsflash, like it takes longer than five minutes to really effectively consider this prayer and then recreate it, but it's really helpful. Um, This is actually, and I'll send out an email on that, but this is actually how we're going to do class next week, is the conclusion of the class is going to be to consider each one of these prayers um, and have you guys like 
in between now and next Wednesday, pick one and then do this exercise and bring it to class and we'll talk about it. So one of the previous 11 prayers that we've looked at and say, hey, I modeled a prayer after this prayer and here's the things that I learned and here's the things that have been impactful. So I'll send an email out about the instructions for that. But um, I think that'll be really helpful for us. Let's go ahead and just say this prayer really quickly and then we'll, we'll wrap up. God, we're thankful for fellowship with you through Christ and the mercies of his resurrection. We're thankful for the unifying call of Christ for us and for others to experience and share. Please fill us and all believers of you with knowledge of your will and that we would have the spiritual wisdom to apply it so that we would be fully pleasing to you and that we would create opportunities to know you more and to bear fruit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.